0: and welcome to episode 167 of SwiftCast. This is Ashley, Steph,
1: and Scott.
0: And we're very excited because joining us is a guest from one of my favorite podcasts and we love doing these kind of collaborations for you because even when Taylor's not doing something we can still be really creative with our episodes and bring you a lot of great content. So please welcome Kevin Porter from Gilmore Guys. Hello!
2: Great content has arrived!
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's finally here.
2: (laughs) How's everyone doing? Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah,
3: thank you. Of course, it's a
2: pleasure. It's an honor to be on the Swift Cast.
0: Well, so for anyone who might be living under a rock for the past couple of years...
2: Or in a rock.
0: Or in a rock. Tell us just, like, super briefly about your show. Okay,
2: so Gilmore Guys is a podcast I do with my better half, Demia Digiwebe, in which we watch every single episode of Gilmore Girls. Talk about it and uh, talk about too much.
0: And your show has been a favorite of mine since, I guess, 2014 now. I mean, Gilmore Girls has been part of my life much longer than Taylor Swift has been part of my life, and having it come to life in sort of this show with new episodes every week was just a really exciting thing for me
2: yeah i mean hopefully that's you know a big part of the appeal is just kind of just selling people their childhoods back again <laughs> in podcast form but i th- I do think nostalgia is like a big kind of part of it because it is fun to i would love to like you know re-watch a show through the eyes of like a first-time viewer you know, something like the West Wing. I, I think that would be so cool. So, yeah, hopefully we're able to provide that to our listeners as well.
0: And both of our shows kind of started the same way, just with fans of something wanting to create a show out of something they loved. And then, in your case, it grew into this crazy, insane thing that only keeps getting bigger.
2: Yeah, well, the bubble's about to burst, I think. <laughs> I think I think that day's coming in maybe a few weeks, a few months. Uh, and then Gilmore guys will be no more and will go away forever. Oh,
0: <laughs> we'll be very sad when that happens. Cause Scott and I have both been listening since the beginning.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's very sweet. But you know, all good things must, uh, die horrifically. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not to ask you something that I'm sure you get asked a lot, but I guess the answer is no. Did you expect it, it would turn into what it has?
2: Uh, no, definitely not. I, the the highest, by the way, anyone who, if you, anyone who does something like this, where it's like, it was successful at all. If they do answer yes, then they're probably a sociopath, <laughs> I think, where it's like, yeah, I did expect this. I did it.
0: I remember in your first couple seasons, you guys saying, hey, I wonder if we did a show with the studio audience. Would anyone be interested in coming? Just testing the waters. And now you're playing these huge theaters to... I don't even know what your biggest capacity is, but it's—they're huge venues.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think Boston was our biggest show so far. We sold that out. That was like twelve hundred people. Actually, I think New York's twelve hundred people too. Uh, Our New York show next month. No, the um,
1: the New York show is going to be twenty-one hundred actually. Not to like correct you on your own show, but
2: oh, okay, well, (laughs)
1: PlayStation theaters (laughs) twenty-one hundred.
2: And I think
0: it's sold out, didn't it?
2: I think it did, yeah. So, oh, even better.
0: (laughs) Well, it's interesting because in the Taylor Swift fandom, fans have so much different content to choose from. I mean, besides just waiting for Taylor to put out new music, there's countless, countless ways. You know, channels, YouTube accounts, Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, everything. Whereas with Gilmore Girls, at the time you guys started, there was nothing new for people who wanted to be actively part of that fan base
2: sure yeah well i mean kind of there actually were like two other podcasts (laughs) when we when we started our podcast and then another one i think started the same day as ours with like the exact same premise of of two guys watching the show one of them for the first time and one of them like a super fan so so there was actually a market but i i guess it just didn't feel that well we didn't do our research which is kind of dumb on our part but But yeah, I mean, with with something as content generating as Taylor Swift, it's got to be such a different thing where her work and her stuff is so fluid. And it feels like, especially in the last, like, I don't know, nine years, she seems to be at the same height of popularity and saturation and culture. And it's hard with, with Taylor Swift. With Gilmore Girls, you know, just to compare the two for a second. With Gilmore Girls, if you're a fan of Gilmore Girls, you fit into... You know, there's a lot of diversity in the fandom of all kinds of, you know, races and and even gender, um, sexual orientation and just kind of like lifestyles. But with Taylor, it's got to be just because it's as common as like Taylor Swift is as common a name as like Kleenex. It's just <laughs> such a household name. Whereas Gilmore Girls, like if you're a fan, you're a fan of the show, but you can hear one song and. And say like, oh, I'm a fan of Taylor Swift. I like that. We're never getting back together. song. So it kind of to be just a fan of Taylor Swift requires a lot less than a seven season long TV show of women talking fast. You know what I mean? So so it must be hard to really suss out the people who are truly fans of Taylor.
0: I think that's definitely true. And I mean, Steph and I can speak to this. It's become harder and harder to get tickets because people who liked one song on the radio are now competing for the same seats at all of the concerts that we are
2: yeah and that's gotta be so frustrating you know i actually go through that with bruce springsteen because bruce springsteen's one of those guys i mean i don't know if he has the same he probably has the same cachet without the same cultural saturation as a taylor swift but it's like man the casual fandom that revolves around like yeah i just want to hear her do uh you know you belong with me and this song and blah, blah, It's like the people who show up to Bruce Springsteen shows and they're like, I want to hear Rosalita. I want to hear Born in the USA. I don't care about anything else. And I'm getting the F out of here before, you know, the parking lot opens up. And that's really frustrating as someone like, which it sounds like you guys are, where, where it's someone where uh, your fandom is so genuine and specific where it's like, no, I know this B-side and I bought the 1989 Deluxe album from Target and I replayed all those demos and actually the best song isn't even on 1989 proper. It's, uh, it's one of the bonus tracks. You can hear into the silence. <laughs> like, and, and, and knowing all that stuff and still having to contend with the fandoms that's like, oh yeah, I like, uh, that one song on Red. I knew you were trouble. Yeah, you know, so, so that, that kind of sucks, but I guess that's just kind of, inevitable with anything that gets that large of an audience.
0: Yeah, it's such a different experience because I would say that I'm in both fandoms, but if you ask me what that means to me, it's just an entirely different thing. Like, anybody who watches Gilmore Girls, it's like I know already that we speak the same language, kind of, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like, you get it to a degree because... There's, uh, I'll put it this way, and I, I think this goes for a lot of TV shows, where I think it's harder, uh, it's much harder to be a casual fan of Gilmore Girls than it is to be a casual fan of Taylor Swift.
0: And I would even say that it's harder to be a casual fan of Gilmore Girls than compared to any new recent shows today, because there's a lot of shows that are easy to just pick up once in a while, whereas that, you really can't. Right. Totally. And... I don't know. I guess one of the things that we think about a lot is when you put yourself as a public figure, you know, we're putting ourselves out there doing these podcasts that hopefully a lot of people will listen to. How do you, for your show, balance the struggle between wanting to be honest and authentic and knowing kind of what the fans want and staying positive but not being fake, I guess? Um, I think,
2: well, you know what? It was really easy to do in the beginning of Gilmore Guys because the assumption, which was true, was that nobody was listening. (laughs) 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 Or hardly anyone was listening. So it was easy to say, like, eh, this is stupid, this kind of sucks, whatever, who cares. But then, once you introduce, like, a plurality into the fandom and the listenership of, like wait, you don't like this? Are you even a real fan? You guys totally miss this, blah, 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 blah. And then uh, there's a weird thing that that happens. I forget what, uh, maybe, maybe one of you guys can tell me. There's that scientific law, I forget what it's called, where something being studied, the nature of it changes by the virtue of it being studied or observed. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? That scientific law? Mm. It's not Murphy's law. It's not the law <laughs> of entropy. It's something else. <laughs> it's not harry's law on uh nbc <laughs> it's something else but um but yeah that's kind of that kind of ended up happening with us on on the podcast where we kind of started being i don't i don't think we got any less honest but i, I think i think we did end up just hearing those voices while we were, we were recording before we actually literally heard them uh in the form of emails or tweets or what have you so that did kind of change it i mean what was it like for you guys
0: yeah i mean it's definitely hard because we've loved taylor since the beginning through all her many phases but there are songs she does that we think aren't as good as others and there are times that she's in the media that we wish she wasn't and it's just it's it's hard it's because we love her at the end of the day but you also really just don't want to be making a show just for the point of only praising something and not really being objective.
2: Yeah, that would be super boring. But I guess, I guess with Taylor, because there probably is such a width in the fandom and like a broad spectrum of it, that it it might be easier to be harsher or more honest, just by sheer virtue of the fact of like, so with something more specific, even like Gilmore Girls, which is like, obviously a very big show. But with something more specific, specific, something that's not represented that much in like cultural conversation. When it is represented, I think, and this is why I think people get like really mad at us, is like when it is represented in a narrow way, just by like a lack of a lot of voice in it. When it doesn't go the way people want it to, then people get mad because they take that as an ultimate or or an authoritative take. Whereas I guess something like Taylor probably has a lot more. Um, diversity in the sense of, of how people perceive her. There's probably, like, general, like, macro perceptions of her, like, things that she kind of gets sucked into or kind of creates Kanye-Kim feuds and stuff like that. But in general, I would imagine it's easier to be a little less precious about it because because it's not like you guys are the only ones that are ever going to talk to her about it. You know you know what I mean? Like, you, you haven't been elected like, oh, I guess you guys are the diplomats of Taylor Swift. <laughs> You're just like, as well as some other voices in, in the conversation. So in a good way, that burden doesn't just like rest on you. Like, don't mess this up, guys. Don't forget to interpret that lyric on track 13 <laughs> in a specific way, blah, blah, blah.
0: Yeah, Steph, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think...
3: On SwiftCast, we always try to stay very positive, but we're willing to admit when Taylor makes mistakes. And like Ashley said, we've been fans for so long that it's bound to happen. Nobody's perfect. And the same with Gilmore Girls. I've watched the whole series, and there are some episodes where I'm thinking, what were they thinking in writing it this way? Especially, of course, toward the end of the series, but that was obvious. Of course, it is a
2: very odd perception that I think a lot of people have and exists I'll put it this way like even in friendships and stuff I've never really connected with the idea that if you like someone or love someone that they're sacred to the point of impenetrability of criticism cuz to me I feel like like with with stuff like that Like your best friends, or at least in my case, and probably in a lot of your cases too, the people you're closest with in your life, you end up kind of giving a lot of guff to. You probably end up making fun of them or, or you know, in some ways, because there is such a foundation of trust and love and affection that already exists. So because of that, you feel a freedom to, you know, kind of, you know, poke fun at them or tease them a little bit. Because that's a part of affection too, is like seeing the whole person and not just seeing the good things and like, oh, you're pretty hair and you're funny and that joke was good. But, but also seeing the things that are fun and, and like, you know, in a real sense, in a holistic way of doing life with someone, just really like identifying that and recognizing that. To me, that that's actually some of the times I feel most known by my friends is when they're making fun of me for a very specific thing. Uh, that people who don't love me or trust me or have as much affection for me wouldn't connect with. So in the same way, in, in when you're a fan of something or when you, when you love an artist or a movie or a TV show, I think there's even more of a latitude to do that the same way you would with a friend. Because I mean, so like the premise of this podcast already is we love Taylor Swift. We love her so much. So already, we're all on the same side, Um, you know, so uh, so people can understand that. And then from there, because that trust is built and you guys know, okay, hey, we love Taylor Swift, then we can, like, start talking about, ah, well, this is troublesome. This is problematic. <laughs> this is great. This is good. This is just okay. Didn't love this. I did love this. And there can be a more nuanced conversation. I've just never gotten the idea of like, if you love something, you can't speak ill of it to any degree. I've just never gotten that.
3: Yeah, that's a great point. I think that Taylor has often said, especially in the past, that she refuses to surround herself by yes men, people who will tell her she can do no wrong because she wants constructive criticism. But sometimes I worry that maybe in the more recent times that she is surrounding herself by people who just say everything she does is the greatest thing of all time.
0: Yeah, I'd be a little
2: worried about that too.
0: (laughs) I mean, I think she's built such a track record of success that people probably look to her judgment and trust it. And for example, when she was making 1989 and her label wanted her to include some country songs on it, and she said no, you know, I think she's at that point where she can kind of do whatever she wants because she's earned it. And I think it would probably have to take a pretty big mistake for some of those people to stop treating her that way. Absolutely.
2: You would hope so. I mean, you never really, the thing with Taylor is that uh, it's hard. I don't think it's Taylor specific, by the way, I I think it's pretty much anybody where you get to this degree of just fame She's one of the most famous people on the planet. So any narrative of authenticity could always be calculated. You don't know because every every piece of information that comes out about this girl or, you know, or slips out about this girl, there's a team of at least like 50 people involved in that.
0: Oh, for sure. When
2: she starts dating this new guy, Tom Hiddleston or whatever. Like, there's 50 people involved in the decision, like, okay, you guys are going to go to Martha's Vineyard, you're going to pose, there's going to be paparazzi, this is how we're leaking it out, you're just like a fun couple, blah, blah, blah. So it's really hard to connect with meta-narratives outside of the actual work. So for me, like, Taylor's fa along with anyone else, like, whether it be Lady Gaga, or You 2 or whatever, because of the level that they're at, I've never felt the need to connect with the life stories. And in fact, it makes me distrust whatever those stories are a little bit more like the idea of like, Oh, well, you know, she was going to do this, but then she did this. And especially when she's the one telling them to you and in, in her demo tracks, like, so I thought, you know, Jack Antonoff came up with a great drum loop and blah, blah, blah. And you know, you're listening to it up, but at the same time, it's like, There's so many decision makers behind this, Whereas something less popular, it's almost like the less popular something is, the more of a chance for authenticity there is because there's just so, so many less cooks in the kitchen.
0: There's just less at stake, I guess.
2: Of course. So like if Taylor Swift cavalierly joked at a press conference about killing herself because the record label wasn't putting out her record the way she wanted it to... That would be an issue, not only because of the <laughs> diversity of like sensitivity in her fandom, but just because, oh, they're one of the most famous people in the world is, you know, then it would be like suicide gate. It'd be slitting her wrist gate. And then there'd be <laughs> team Taylor. It's okay to joke like that. The jokes take away the power of suicide. And then there'd be like, no, she doesn't, she's not sensitive to this, blah, 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 blah. But then even if something as culturally significant as Gilmore girls, Amy Sherman Palladino can do it, do it in. No one cares.
0: Yeah, she said she was gonna, what, hang herself from her shower curtain if Netflix didn't put the episodes out the way she wanted. Yeah.
2: That's one of a few suicide references that she's, uh, that she's mentioned in recent interviews. So it's just like, you can't, and I'm not even saying, cause that might be just as calculated, but there's at least more of a chance for authenticity with something just flying lower, you know, lower under the radar so to speak. I mean, and lower on the radar in this sense being lower than the most famous person in the world or one of the top 10 or 20 most famous people in the world. So, you know, it's hard. It's hard to like suss out and connect on that meta level with someone that famous because it's like, I don't know what's real. I don't know what's fake, but you can always, you know, it's like that old dumb cliche, trust the art, not the artist, but it has to be even more true. Like the larger this stuff gets, it has to be true. I mean, if it's not true about Michael Jackson, we're all in trouble, right? Like, you just gotta <laughs> trust the art, not the artist. It has to be true about Whitney Houston. It has to be true about Frank Sinatra, who was basically a mafia, like, criminal. <laughs> so you have to, you have to go by that with a lot of this stuff. I mean, how, what is y'all's relationship with the extra, the extra musical life of Taylor Swift, like anything that doesn't have to do directly with her songs or her tour or her albums or her music, like how, how does that fit into y'all's framework of her?
0: Well, I definitely want to hear from both of you guys too because I think we all differ in it somewhat. Like for me, I guess I pay more attention to the details of her personal life now than I did in the past because it's so much more highly scrutinized than before. But at the same time, when I listen to a song, I don't really care who she's saying it's about. And if people are doubting that that's who it's really about, I still don't care as long as it's a great song. I honestly doesn't keep me up at night, you know? Like, I'm interested in what people are saying, but I also don't take it too seriously.
2: Yeah, and especially, too, because, I don't know, for me, you know what actually was the big kind of, I don't know if I'm Team Taylor anymore moment? In, in terms of her, like, her personal life and, and championing her as like, oh, I think this girl's solid. Is uh that really, was it a Vanity Fair interview that she did maybe a couple years ago after... After the Golden Globes? After the Golden Globes, yes. That was Vanity Fair. After Amy and Tina did the joke about her, you know, like a very, a very like not outrageous, not offensive joke about her dating around. Not salacious at all, just like, yeah, she dates a lot of guys but not even borderline. And then her response was, well, I'll say what Katie Couric says, is that there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women out. Which that, to me, just really... To me, that actually is the stuff where it's like, okay, this is very calculated. I don't think you can get any higher in public opinion than the good, the cultural goodwill surrounding Polar and Faye. And so the fact that you'd be like, I think they're going to burn in hell because they said a kind of... Toothless joke about me at an award show. I was like, okay, if this is your authentic self, then I need to disconnect with it because that was just like a real whoopsie daisy moment. I think that was that was where I was like, you know what? Maybe you're not that great. That's okay. I'll still buy and enjoy your albums, but I don't need I don't need extra biblical or extra biblical extra <laughs> musical Taylor. I don't need extra biblical Taylor either. Truth be told, yeah. I
1: mean, I think for me, I always. Like you said, Ashley, I'm kind of interested, but it doesn't super affect my enjoyment of the music usually. But with stuff like that, I tend to be really fascinated in the way she plays her media perception. And even saying stuff like that, like that Vanity Fair interview, I mean, like you're saying, that's getting approved by so many people that, you know, it's definitely, It's not like she said that off the cuff. Like, that's what she wanted to to say. That's the message she wanted to put out, whether you agree with it or not, right?
2: Which is even crazier, I think. Like, that a team would be like, yeah, this is good. <laughs> I think it's so outrageous.
0: Well, it's funny because she actually did change publicist not too long after that happened. And honestly, when it came out, I didn't really think too much about it. And I have a totally different view on it now that I'm older. So I feel like maybe, you know, she was younger too. I wonder if she regrets now that she said that. I
3: have to think so. I think she probably does. And I also wonder, though, if that was when Taylor began her shift toward feminism and a huge theme of 1989 was feminism. She started reading up on it through the help of Lena Dunham. So I always sort of wondered if that was the moment where she shifted. Which I guess even
2: the idea of that original quote is kind of a feminist idea, like women not helping other women. Which to me, I'm, well, I guess I'm not qualified to speak on this because I'm not a woman. But <laughs> but I do feel like uh, legitimate conversations kind of get hijacked with that in the sense of like bringing a gun to a knife fight. Where there's like a legit, whatever is going on, whatever is going on in a conversation or in the media. And then gets hijacked with, oh, so you hate women. It's like. Uh, Sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's very true. And the deep seated sexism of so many American structures are like, you know, we're going to be untangling those for the rest of our lives. But sometimes a quote is just a quote and a joke is just a joke. And then the feminism defense of like, I I even remember speaking of which uh, in this uh, in this long interview, Palladino did where they were talking about the Shonda Rhimes thing Shonda Rhimes criticized Amy for not casting any uh girls of color on bunheads and she was like well i can't let my daughters watch this now blah 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 and then she was doing this interview and the fe- the interviewer this woman said you know it's weird that a woman would would uh critique another woman showrunner And it just became this whole different the actual issue being pretty fair which is uh amy's complete and utter fa- uh failure in regards to diversity, <laughs> that's like pretty fair. It's pretty fair, I feel like, especially in this day and age. But, um, and then it became like women aren't helping other women out. Well, I wouldn't do that as a female showrunner, blah, 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 blah. Like, and it became crazy. Um, so uh, that is interesting. I think Taylor, and, and even, even then, like we're, we're talking about her shift towards feminism, but is bad blood, which is ostensibly, a Katy Perry subtweet of a song, right? Is that true? Like, that's about Katy Perry? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is. So, what's that? You're not helping out another woman. What's the deal with that? But you're feminist. Are you going to that special place in hell reserved for people like this? Like, you said, like, what's going on? So, I think it becomes a, a weird uh species of appropriation that's really hard to identify. Oftentimes, Uh, and far be it for me to, and I could be totally off in all of this, but but it is just like there are some troubling things when you examine the extra musical life of Taylor Swift, I feel like so much so to the point where I've kind of all but checked out of it, other than when it's like trending on Twitter and I can't. it.
0: (laughs) I think that. It's kind of with anything you're a big fan of, If you and I'm sure even with Gilmore, you can feel this to an extent when you analyze it too closely, it starts to lose some of what you loved about it.
2: No, I love Gilmore Girls just as much before I started this two-year-long podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It hasn't lost any of the appeal at all, I'm sure.
1: (laughs) Well, I, I think for me, there are obviously legitimate things to criticize Taylor Swift about or, you know, any of these other people that we're talking about but um she kind of to me gets an unfair amount of it you know where you could criticize her for some of these things but you could also criticize like a lot of male artists for being way worse you know and and i think there's like that desire to see her as being so perfect that we really relish in like taking her down pegs when like some of that is justified but some of it could be like placed in other places you know
2: I think it is just the, uh, it's almost like the, the Regina George archetype in Mean Girls, where it's like you want to take down the pretty calculated girl of Peg, even when those around her might be just as guilty, if not more so. Right. Like there, I would not make, make this argument personally, but there are those that could say, oh, well, did Beyonce just appropriate Black Lives Matter and hop onto that bandwagon when it became its most commercially viable and it would have become damaging for her career not to? There's an argument to be made. Again, I'm not going to do it. But that's that's a totally different thing because there is this, um, especially on Twitter, I feel like this awe and reverence that becomes an impenetrable shield from criticizing Beyonce in any capacity. That just doesn't exist with Taylor. Right. There is a weird thing. I feel like the same, uh, the same sort of thing that gets people real riled up about Anne Hathaway. Gets people riled up about Taylor Swift. Well, she's the annoying theater, the musical theater geek. She's trying too hard. She's blah, blah, blah. And it's this real double-edged sword of like any modicum of calculation that you see in another like prominent woman of influence or power becomes like, well, we're seeing it in this election, obviously. I mean, not to make too much of a one-for-one comparison, but it's just like everything Hillary does. She's a robot. She's blah, blah, blah. There's this desire, I feel like. and And I don't know what it is because then you get people like, for some reason, there's less of that aura around Beyonce just because I guess her queendom trumps it. I don't know, whatever. But like Rihanna. Rihanna doesn't really experience any of that because she's opted out of calculation. Her calculation is the public persona image of a Rihanna and artist like her is, I don't care, eh. you know, And just like, oh, here I am naked on this uh, thing. Here I am smoking weed. I'm not a role model. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm just me, which is a different form of narrative, but it's still one that exists, but she evades the utter harshness of what a Taylor Swift or Hillary Clinton or an Anne Hathaway would get because of that. Because some people's things are like, I'm cool, I don't care. And then some people, I mean, you know.
0: I think that, yeah, with Taylor, she built up this image so young that no matter what she's done and sort of grown and evolved because of how she started, people view her in a certain light that will never go away. It is
2: a weird thing that I feel like she came into I'm trying to remember the timeline but I I just remember there seemed she at the time was perceived to be like a bit of a reprieve from some of the other stuff going on in female pop stars. Like I remember it just felt like she was positioned on the opposite end of a spectrum from like Akisha or A Fergie, like peeing on herself on stage. I think from the sheer virtue of the fact that Swift wasn't a transparent, disastrous train wreck (laughs) of a human being. Honestly, like at the time, she was like this shiny little dime, just like, hey guys, here's my guitar, here's my songs, blah, blah, blah. And she didn't, she wasn't, uh, she didn't dress promiscuously and she wasn't overtly sexual in her lyrics. So people kind of upheld her as like, well, she's a role model. This is what girls should aspire to be, blah, blah, blah. And look at look at these party animals over here. This isn't what our daughters need to be listening to. It, it, it needs to be Taylor. I remember even Katie Curry kind of like framing her that way in one of those early interviews. And I think because of that, she's kind of carried that mantle. And I mean, part of it is like, yeah, she wanted it. And that's like a lot of the appeal of country in general, like a lot of country's appeal besides like Ford F-150s and jars of beer, is the idea of, hey, we're we're the real America, we're the heartland, we're the homeland. And because Taylor Swift has those roots, I think she was a part of that, even though she's definitely broken off a little bit from that now. But I think some of that um, Blue Bonnet Good little Girl appeal in that demo still kind of exists with her. Although, although I could make the argument, and I fact have, on numerous occasions, that some of Taylor's thematic ideas are, in the long term, more damaging than, say, a Keisha or even a Katy Perry, which is kind of empty, but whatever. Like Keisha or Katy Perry or a Fergie. In that, there's no pretense with those girls. There's no pretense with a Rihanna of like, yeah, smoke weed, party, eh? Whereas with Taylor, it creates these, when cultural frames you as you know, this is, this is kind of the antidote to trashiness or whatever. You kind of begin to trust it and believe it. And those lyrics get inside of you. And the nature of it is, I wonder how many, it's kind of like the drum that gets hit a lot in terms of like the Buzz buzzfeedification of culture, but with like Disney princesses and rom-coms, like, oh, that screwed up a generation of young people. They had False expectations for romance, for their love life, for the relationships. I wonder how mi- how much that's true of Taylor Swift lyrics. Because sometimes the a song is song, songs a song. But when you're framed as like this is the good one, and you're singing songs about like, ven- you know, soft core, but still like vengeance, victimization. She wears short skirts, I wear t-shirts, and you still you're still a model. You wore a t-shirt, but you were gorgeous while you were doing it. You're a little Gap model. So you weren't showing as much skin, but you're still beautiful by a conventional standard. Like those things can get under people's skin. And I would argue can on a long enough scale become more damaging <laughs> in, in a way. And I mean, it's all about like balance and knowing what you're consuming. Cause it's like, if you eat a bag of Dritos, but you know, you ate a bag of Dritos, that's okay. You can go run a mile the next day, whatever. But if you listen to Taylor Swift stuff and say you're like an unimpressionable kid, like a boy or girl growing up and you're getting these lyrics inside of you it's like oh well you know if no one's telling you hey i think those are i think those are doritos and you're just like no i think this is a bag of kale and i'm gonna eat the whole thing like that that's where it can become troubling if that makes sense like i don't find anything inherently troubling about taylor swift's music i find the framing of it culturally to be troubling which can lead to further damaging ideas down the road if that makes sense
3: i don't know i mean it could be true but when i was a kid a young kid I listened to lots of inappropriate songs about drugs and sex and I turned out okay I didn't just because I like semi-charm life by third eye blind doesn't mean I went out and smoked crystal meth
2: (laughs) (laughs) oh no totally and and that's what I would say is because yeah it was about yeah it was about drugs and sex and rock and roll and if you know that that's what you're listening to then you know that that that's what you're listening to but Taylor Swift's ideas it's not like Hi, I'm Taylor Swift, and I smoke reefer, and you should too, or whatever, like anything at that explicit. But it's more like these subtle relationship uh, philosophies and these subtle like relational dynamics, and it's okay to do this. It's okay to do that. And, and when things aren't framed properly culturally, I think it gives people permission to do things. Like if you watch Breaking Bad, you're not going to go out and cook crystal meth, because you're like, well, clearly from the way the show is framed, Walt is not a hero. He's a bad man. It's called Breaking Bad. But if you were to watch it and people around you said, oh, you know, this is a great show and Walt's a good example of how to provide for a family in the midst of conflict or something. And then you watch I know that's a very extreme example, given what we're talking about. (laughs) But I do feel like that's true because context is so king and so important. And especially for me, like I grew up in a pretty conservative household where it's like, this is good. This is bad. And it was a little bit legalistic. Which I kind of, you know, God forbid I have kids one day, but if I did, I don't know if I would raise them quite the right way. I would just, I would just raise them to know what they're watching, to to not just not watch it, because I think that can create other things too. Anyway, I guess this is my, this is my podcast about my future <laughs> parents right sorry guys.
3: I get what you're saying, but I think that when you look at how many songs Taylor's written, I think she's really diversified her lyrical content and. I think if you put everything in a big vacuum, you could make those generalizations about the theme of her songs. But I think she's really branched out a lot, especially in recent years.
2: Oh, totally. I agree. I just that that was just and I know I talked about it for a long time, but it was just like a an interesting footnote about the cultural framing of Taylor Swift. I don't think that's like the core of Taylor Swift's music is like secret evil. I just think it, it's might it might be an interesting takeaway to some degree.
0: I think with a lot of things, you just don't realize till later in life how they really affected you. And I know especially with a lot of younger teens who, you know, maybe haven't experienced relationships fully yet, they do sometimes take song lyrics pretty literally and think that is what their relationship should look like. Yeah. So I think it'll really be something like you said, you know, 10, 20, 30 years or more down the road, we'll really see what her full cultural impact has been.
2: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see like this generation uh, grow up with their pop artists because I feel like right now we're starting to see the first rock and roll stars ever age into their like 60s, 70s and 80s. And that's been an interesting progression to see how like they've succeeded or failed in evolving with their audience. Like, for my money, like, uh, a, a Rolling Stones has kind of failed. I mean, they're, they're still gonna sell out everywhere and they're still gonna make millions of dollars, but they, like, content wise, their music really failed to evolve with their audience. They're still, it's still Mick Jagger dancing around like a skinny little weirdo talking about having sex with young girls. And he's <laughs> like, oh, you have grandchildren. You have great grandchildren, Mick, but you're still, this is what you're singing about. But then you see people, even like McCartney, definitely springsteen and, and neil young people who have like more uh like country thematic ideas and their stuff in country always ages more uh ages better than like pop where it's like let's uh get drunk and have sex age is always less better than well the factory closed down and i'm trying to make ends meet and my wife left you know like that sort of stuff has a little more cachet so it'll be interesting to see like this generation your Jonas Brothers your Katy Perry's your Taylor Swift's you know keep up and try to evolve with their audience like is she gonna become sort of a, a, a Stevie Nicks character is she gonna become more of a I don't even know what a Joni Mitchell maybe maybe she'll have like a Joni Mitchell phase at some point in her career
0: well, I was just thinking about Madonna and how she still continues to perform, but like you were just saying, I don't think has really evolved in the right way. And I think that Taylor will make sure that she does evolve, even if it's not always easy to do as she ages.
2: I hope so. And, it's, and especially too, because we're now kind of in this generation. I saw a really funny tweet about this the other day where it's like, it goes baby boomers, generation X millennials and now i feel like we're kind of getting into what's going to be called you know with like some sneer or not like the woke generation (laughs) where it's not going to be an option anymore to not care about social justice stuff or it's not going to be an option anymore to not participate in conversations about feminism or racism equality black lives matter gay rights all these things and so i think it'll be really interesting to see how Taylor's music evolves with that. If it will become more socially conscious or if it will continue to be like 1989 was just like a, like a little silver blanket of a pop album where it's like, it doesn't really have, it doesn't have anything to say about like the society around it. It's more of a, of a relief from that. Uh, you know, with Blank Space and Welcome to New York. You know, and and there's that lyric, boys and boys and girls and girls, but that's pretty much as far as she's going to go into that. But even that, that's like a remarkable idea. Because think about, like, would one of the best-selling pop albums of all time from even 10 or 15 years ago affirm homosexual love? Like in one of its first songs, one of the first lyrics on one of the first songs of the album? Probably not. So it's going to be interesting to see how people keep up with that spectrum of it.
3: I think Taylor's done a great job of evol- of evolving. If you compare her debut album, where she had the lyric, "That's fine, I'll tell mine you're gay," to "Welcome to New York."
2: Whoa, that I didn't know that was a a lyric on one of the first effort on one of the first albums.
3: <laughs> it was in "Picture to Burn," and it was actually edited out to "That's fine, you won't mind if I say," but. I think that if in the future she finds she can't evolve as she ages, she consistently says she'll step out of the spotlight and write for other people. So I can see that happening.
2: Wow. Yeah, that's so funny. I'm surprised that's not more of a controversy. I feel like that would have gotten thrown in her face a lot.
0: If it came out today, definitely. But I think it, I think very few people honestly really remember that that was the original (laughs) lyric.
3: Yeah. Wow. Right, that was back in 2007.
2: Yeah, when it was still illegal to be gay.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It is remarkable to see how much we've progressed, even just thinking about the way songs were back then. Totally. Even Blake Shelton was found to be making all these homophobic comments on Twitter like six years ago. So I think Taylor's been evolving with the times. And like you said, probably more gradually. Welcome to New York. Is just a short line, but I think she'll continue.
0: And I've been dying to ask you, Kevin, do you think, and if so, how, that Taylor will be referenced by either Rory, Lorelei, or anyone else in the revival?
2: Uh, yes, and I think derisively. <laughs> it's my answer.
0: You think they'll make fun of her?
2: <laughs> I think Amy Sherman Palladino, whenever she sees a, a powerful blonde woman of influence, will... Uh aim to take her down whenever she can. That's actually very unfair because there's a lot of pro Hillary jokes in the first few seasons. But, um, uh, yeah, I feel like because it's kind of an easy cultural punching bag, like we're saying, it's like the Regina George syndrome of it all that I think there, there might be some, it's, it's hard though because they shot it February to uh, February to beginning of May. And so Taylor, it, it wasn't quite the same back then, and, and so I wonder if, like, if Taylor wasn't on the mind, and I know they kept doing constant rewrites of of these new scripts, so I wonder, I really wonder if it'll be in the new ones. But if, if it is in there, I think it'll be, like, Lorelai snarking on her.
0: But I also think, even though they'll make snarky jokes, that they'll also, the character is not necessarily what Amy would write, but I feel like they would actually love her. Like, they would make fun of her, but they would also blast her in the car.
2: Oh, sure. But I think I think for the music snobbery language of Gilmore Girls, a lot of times, it ain't going to be like Hep Alien Blast here in the car. It's going to be, it'll be like Lorelai. Rory would not listen to Taylor Swift, Swift but Lorelai would be down for it.
0: Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> well, I can't wait to find out. I feel like that's something I've been waiting for for the past 10 years. <laughs> oh, yeah.
3: I really want Rory to listen to Taylor. I'll be bummed.
0: I feel like season one and two Rory definitely would have.
3: Yeah, that's true.
0: Though she was a music snob even back then, but I feel like Taylor could have gotten Rory through the Dean breakup.
3: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think so too.
2: We can do a crossover. Okay, so if you had to pick one of those Taylor songs to be the new theme song of Gilmore Girls, which one would it be?
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) I feel like that's almost as big of a question as someone asking me to pick my favorite Taylor song which I always say I can't because <laughs> it's such a huge huge question.
1: Ooh. It is interesting because so many of her songs are focused on on either like romantic relationship beginning or ending so for a show that is so focused on relationships of a different kind um, they would have to sort of do something like what they do with the Carol King song and change the way it's framed a little bit to make it work you know
3: yeah i think thematically for me the best song would be the best day i mean maybe not for the new series because i don't know how the mother-daughter relationship what kind of focus that will have in the new episodes but for all the other episodes that was the central focus of the show and the best day is a song taylor wrote for her mom yeah yeah
2: I'm going to go a little left field here. I'm going to say Begin Again from the end of Red. Yeah. Um, Ooh. They might frame it a little bit differently, but this will be, you know, Richard Gilmore's passing in the new episodes, and they're going to have to contend with that in New Beginnings, and it's going to be the three girls at a crossroads. So I could say Begin Again.
0: I feel like Begin Again would have been perfect for the cheesy 2000s WB promos. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) I can just see that in my head. Absolutely. I was going to say... Kind of on a joking note, but I think it should be love story because honestly, that's all people care about. (laughs) Just the montage of Rory and all the boyfriends with love story. Everyone else doesn't need to be in the Don't
2: need it. No, thanks. (laughs) Oh, speaking of which,
1: I I wanted to ask you, Ashley, because I actually haven't heard you tell this story, but you just met Milo.
0: I did. I did this weekend at Comic-Con.
1: How was that?
0: It was awesome. I mean, Kevin, obviously you've met him and talked to him. He's the most down-to-earth guy you will ever meet.
2: Shockingly, shockingly charming. And I know he's a good-looking boy on TV. A lot of of boys are good-looking boys on TV. But he was so disarming from minute one. He was everything you wanted him to be, plus a little bit more. (laughs) I would agree. One of our very favorite people to interview. I'm not just blowing smoke.
0: No, I I just went through his autograph line, but he actually was great because he didn't just like shuffle people along. He actually took a couple of minutes to talk to each person. And so I was asking him about filming the revival and everything. And I asked him, are you going to watch it when it comes out? Or do you feel like because you were in it, you don't need to? And he said he is going to watch it because he watches his work to make sure that he doesn't F it up. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that was a good answer.
2: Oh yeah, he said something like that to us too. It's like, uh, it's like a football coach watching the footage the next day.
0: Yeah. But I mean, it was a great experience meeting him and it was weird because, you know, I've watched him on TV for like the past decade, but it didn't feel, I wasn't freaking out like I did when I met Taylor. It just felt like I was meeting up with a friend. That's the kind of guy he is.
2: Yeah. He's very good at making people feel, uh, comfortable.
0: And sorry, guys, he told me who Rory ends up with. I just can't tell any of you.
2: (laughs) That's not true. (laughs) That can't be true.
0: No, but it was really great. I mean, I think he goes to a lot of those conventions around the country, and I'd highly suggest people going to meet him if you can.
2: Yeah, you won't be disappointed by that experience.
0: Well, Kevin, do you want to plug all of your many, many things before we go? Uh it's not
2: that many. <laughs> but you can uh you can listen to Gilmore Guys uh wherever you find podcasts and then if you're in the area of Toronto, Canada, Nashville, Tennessee, Austin, Texas, Boulder, Colorado, or Los Angeles in September and October we're gonna be doing live shows there. Uh you can find the info on that, gilmoreguysshowcom dot com slash tour. And then you can find me on Twitter at Kevin T Porter.
0: And as always you can find us on Twitter at SwiftCast thirteen. You can email us at theswiftcast13 at gmail.com. And all of our stuff is on our website, swiftcast13.com. And you can also leave us a review on iTunes and a five-star rating. We always appreciate that. And, yeah, Kevin, thanks so much. This was a blast.
2: Yeah, this was so fun. Thanks for having me and letting me rant for five minutes. Thank <laughs> you Each for Each time you ask a question. Of course. It was my pleasure.
0: All right. We'll talk to you later. Right, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Swiftcast.
1: Visit us on the web at theswipcast.com. Swiftcast is not directly
3: affiliated with Taylor Swift, Big Machine Label Group, or 13 Management.